Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Uh, so I was I was just um, telling you both. I thought this might be interesting for people out there in the world. We uh, have some high school students that have asked if they can edit our podcast for us as as an experience thing. So. We're going to let them try it out, see how it goes. I'm pretty excited to have them. Uh, I can't remember all their names or I would tell them, but thank you to to you, to you all editing the podcast. Totally. I'm excited. Sounds rad. And it's been a little while. I know. I've gotten a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. Um, what's new? I'm running around like crazy. Uh, <laughs> the things, things are good. We, we've got um, some... New contracts, binary noggins looking to hire. So if anybody wants to submit a resume, resumes at binarynoggin.com. We're looking for uh, mid-level developers that want to build Elixir products, teams. It, we, we don't always work on Elixir, but that's that's what we want to work on. Those are the contracts we go after. So That's awesome. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I really love working with people. So the more of us, the merrier as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Where are you right now? I feel like I don't recognize this spot. I switched offices in my building. Um, so the co-working space that I'm in is pretty loose about like you, we have month to month leases. And I was like, hey, how's that room over there? And they said, it's open and it's half the price of the room you're currently in. And I said, OK, I'm moving. <laughs> and I was I was in here the very next week. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, well, I and all of the interns have gone back for the summer, so I don't need as much space. And uh, and my admin assistant, she's she's moving on. You know, when when she came on to work with us, she was um, saying that it was temporary, like this wasn't her passion, but she wanted to help out and grow, and she's had a pretty major impact with us. And now she's moving on to do some. Uh, some nonprofit work that she's really excited about. So her last day is tomorrow. And so that's exciting. We're really excited for her. Uh, it's, it's been a, a wild roller coaster of a ride that she has definitely helped push us in the right direction. Cool. That's awesome. Congratulations to her. How about you, Anna? Um, yeah, just like lots of running around. I'm in San Francisco I was spending most of the pandemic up in Tahoe, but I've been down here because um, of the, well, the fires are like finally better now, but fire season was crazy in the mountains. Um, just lots of work, some family stuff. So just a little bit busy the past like month and a half or so, but things are generally pretty good. I go on sabbatical for a month tomorrow from Carbon 5, so I'm psyched for that. Um, Ooh, I've never done that before. I think that'll be fun. Thank you. Um, so I think that'll be fun. Any big plans for? Um, I'm going to Josh Joshua Tree for a week to climb um, with a friend of mine. Uh, but other than that, just like some downtime, yeah, it'll be nice. I'd say it's so your statement there, like it's it's weird to me when you said fire season. It's like you know rainy season, snowy season, fire season. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> it's real in California. It's very real in California. It's just not something that I even think about. Yeah, we need the water. We will trade the East Coast with all, for all the like hurricane stuff that they're getting because we need the water desperately. Oh, uh, yeah. It's crazy. 
Uh, Sean, how have you been? What's been going on? I feel like since you know last time I talked to you it was a long time ago, and I haven't been on the show yeah. in a little while. Yeah. Um, the uh, so I'm I'm finally taking two weeks PTO. Um, so just doing a staycation stuff. I had uh, a few weeks ago realized with a little prodding from my manager that I had taken only five days this entire year. Um, so so I'm I'm taking time off. Got to see some friends, relaxing looking at stuff that interests me that's not work related. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fun. What do you do to get like, not the vacation downtime, but what do you do for your regular downtime? I've been like me lately. I've been trying to get away from the computer and go ride bikes and I mean, really get away from everything, I guess, not just the computer, but like all of the responsibilities of, even a little bit of the responsibilities of parenthood. Like I can throw my daughter on a bike. She'll ride right alongside me in her bike and, and it's blissful. <laughs> that sounds great. How, how, how far do you, do you ride? Uh, usually with when she's along. So last weekend we went down by, by where you live, Sean, and we rode around the airport and then up to uh, post coffee and then back down, so it's like about a ten mile ride. It's pretty flat there, so she's she's good with that. Um, she was tired, but you should let me know sometime. I'll go riding with you because I need to get out of the house too. <laughs> well, sounds good, yeah. Uh, and I took my son once, and we went down to the Katy Trail and did twenty miles. Uh, and he is he is definitely not a person who gets up and goes and does stuff like that. He was exhausted <laughs> when he came back and he wore a hoodie in the middle of the summer. I don't know the style out on the Katie trail where there's no people around was more important to him than being cool. How old is your son? 15. <laughs> nice. When I, when I was about that age, it took a, a 20 mile ride with some friends and uh, it was just spur of the moment. And I was wearing jeans and it was the oh, worst. Oh yeah, he was too. Because <laughs> because we we went around the, the Indian Creek Trail in in Johnson County all the way over to the state line, um, and uh, and back, and it took a really long time, and I was exhausted. So I understand the hoodie situation, just in different form. <laughs> totally. Well, when you're that age, right? Like your priorities around what's important, what's important, are a little bit different. Yeah. That's awesome that you're getting out, Amos. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. I have a, uh, I've been eating healthy too. I lost twelve pounds, and so my daughter the other day told me my arms look better. I was like, "Whoa, was I big enough to have flabby arms?" <laughs> and uh, I was told that my neck looks thinner, so that's probably a good thing. I'm sure that my heart appreciates me doing better food and and physically yeah totally uh, and you probably i mean i don't know i feel better when i move if i don't move during the day then i don't feel as good i feel like sometimes it's hard but getting outside makes such a difference yeah yeah i, I forget a lot um and my so my my wife is uh being more involved with the company than she was in the past. And she's been coming in here every day and she's like, did you eat lunch? It'd be like three o'clock in the afternoon. No, I have not. <laughs> so she's been, she's been pushing me to. That's good. To make sure that I'm taking care of myself. Yeah. That's awesome. I get, I get, I get heads down in a problem and 
I, I heads down is not really the right word. I hate that word. Uh, cause I'm, I'm not alone in the problem. I'm working with a bunch of people, but whenever I'm solving a problem or trying to solve a problem, I, I like can't quit. Like somebody has to make me walk away. It's really bad. And I know, I know that I should go out and go for a walk when, especially if I'm stuck or feeling stuck. Yeah, totally. or, yeah. And I don't know that, you know, that five minutes from done, just five more minutes and I'll be done thing. <laughs> and I've always said, I never want to live my career five minutes from done, but man, it's, it, it's hard not, not to be there sometimes. Yeah, that's fair. I hear that. Um, although it's funny because then as soon as you walk away, you come back, you're like, oh, that was the thing that I was trying to solve. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many times that that going on that walk has been the secret mm -hmm. to and and sometimes the walk doesn't have to be far no. i can go i can walk over and get a cup of coffee and come back and have it mm -hmm. just giving your mind a break because going down a rabbit hole in circles doesn't help right i try to even though even if i get over there and i have the idea i try to stay away from my desk a little longer like at least 10 to 15 minutes mm -hmm. try to let things marinate, I guess, for a little bit. <laughs> Make sure it wasn't just a crazy idea. <laughs> right. Totally. No. I mean, that's important, too. I'm actually working on, like, a workshop, trying to put together a workshop around... I'm, the current project that I'm on is so bizarre in a good way, but, like, trying to put together a workshop on um, the part of systems thinking that involves just, like, thinking about super ambiguous problems and how you start to approach them, right? I mean, it's kind of all of what systems thinking is about, but like, especially when there are just like no parameters or like, we have to do this thing and like, it's never been done before and there aren't necessarily any good parameters. And like, how do you start thinking about breaking down that kind of problem um, in a way that lets you kind of move forward effectively? Um, and it's really interesting. It's like, well, what, like, you know, how do you start putting constraints on this idea and like, and then how do you start testing the pieces, the, those constraints? And then how do you, it's really interesting. Um, and I feel like even in my, especially in this amorphous thinking, I like get stuck in the thinking and then I have to come back, step away and come back to like figure out how to push the, the idea forward. Um, basically, I think I mentioned I'm working on a project at work where it's like building a social networking protocol. We actually built the first version of it um, so that people could build social media apps on the blockchain. But the, when we started, they were like, we're building this thing and it hadn't been done and there aren't any good patterns. So figure it out. Um, and the process of the, with, with which we went forward was really interesting to me. So trying to figure out like what are the pieces you can abstract, then use again when similar ambiguous problems come up. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm just blown away by social media on the blockchain. <laughs> yeah. What's the, what's the value proposition of blockchain in that? I think the uh, the value prop there is trying to give people back control over their data and their social graph. Um, and so, like, basically, when you use, you know, any of the social media applications today, they, they own your data and your social graph. In this case, your social graph would live on chain. And so let's say you could give access to a decentralized Twitter or whatever to use your social graph and your data, but then you could revoke the access. And then if you went to use a different social media application, you would still have access to all of your data and your graph. You don't have to start over. Um, and you could choose to give another application access. So it's really giving access back to the user. Um, that's like the main the main proposition there. Um, and now you really can't delete anything, right? 
once it's in that chain. Um, <laughs> you can't. Yes, yes, and no. I mean, like you can you can't delete anything on chain, but you can like mark things as not being serviced to an application, right? Like if you wanted to delete something, it's like more like tombstoning, I guess, where it's like it's there, mm -hmm. but it's not being right referenced. Um, that is an interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Is the data actually stored in the blockchain, um, or are there just pointers to external resources? Mostly pointers to external resources. It actually depends on the. We we are. Um, for what we for, for what we originally built as like an MVP, it was pointers to external resources, um, just because it's so expensive to store data on chain. Um, uh, so other chain that we're looking into some other chains that are much cheaper and would allow us to actually store more data on chain. Um, but yeah, it gets expensive very quickly. Well, and then there's also the question of do you actually own your data if it's in the blockchain? Um, so like I think maybe longer term keeping pointers would be would give people more um uh more more ownership over their data they can store it where they want they can delete things if they want to to make them unavailable um so yeah that's true that's true yeah it's been really interesting um the whole process has been interesting the most interesting piece to me though has been like all right we have to solve this problem and we have no idea where to start how do you start and i feel like i'm curious to hear if you all, I mean, I'm sure everyone's encountered this before, but I'm curious how you both approach kind of that kind of thinking when you have to solve a problem and you really don't know where to start. I start writing. Like, I would say not quite, but almost that like undirected where even if you're writing the same word over and over, um, sometimes that helps me. I But I'll like write down questions, mm -hmm. like questions I have. And sometimes I just write down, where do I start? <laughs> Uh, and, and that can be helpful, mm -hmm. um, for me or another thing that I'll do is, um, although it's not turning into tests, I probably should is I'll, I'll think about what are the properties of this, of this thing that I'm going to do and come up with like the simplest property and, and then say, okay, well, at least I can make that work. Um. I probably should turn that and write it into a test instead of just making it in my mind. But, uh, um, yeah, that's the, those, those are the kind of steps that really work with my brain. I don't know if they would work with yours. No, that makes sense. I mean, Sean, I'm curious what you, what you, what your thoughts are. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much a read type person. So, um, I will, uh, either make use of my wife's librarianship skills or, or just do my own searching on ACM, you know, fine. Uh, or, or just on, on the internet in general, find things I can read that are around similar topics, um, trace the resources that each, you know, if I find a research paper or a blog post that has references, I'll follow those references and read those. Um, but that's more about uh, me just trying to get an understanding of the space. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, even if I like, I don't find any specific answers to the problem mm -hmm. that I'm I'm working on. Totally. Uh, that's really amorphous. Uh, just understanding what other people have done can kind of uh, help me understand what approach I might take. Totally. Yeah, I found that really helpful too. Like trying to get a better understanding of like what are maybe similar, if not exact, or what are existing systems, right? Or what are existing kind of implementations of something similar. Um, even though that, or at least like, what are the mo what what models are out there currently, right? And how does that work or not work? Um, 
that's been really interesting. But Amos, you said something really interesting too, like um, defining the properties. Like once you have a general idea of a model, like putting constraints on the system, right? Like defining the properties and like starting to put constraints somewhere. I, those work really well for me whenever I have to work with non-technical people too over over something because as I start to figure out those constraints, I can go to uh, uh, one of the not non-technical people and say, Hey, look, you know, this thing is going to take time. What is, what is a, uh, fast enough? Like, so that, that can also start to give me constraints like, Oh, I need this to happen under a second or we can do it in the background and update the data 10 minutes from now. We don't care. And so I, I get to, as I'm thinking about constraints, it allows me to talk about them with them and, and figure out what their actual constraints are too. Because I think most of the time when things are amorphous, it's because I wasn't actually given great, great requirements. It was like, we have this idea. Go. Totally. <laughs> okay. Exactly. This kind of was so, exactly so that. That's, yeah. that. That's also why I like to write down the questions is because when they say go, then that's really what I'm doing is figuring out like, what do I need to know? What do I need to ask of them? And what can I decide on my own? Amos, do you ever get in those situations where someone has a solution but no problem for it to solve? Oh, uh, yeah. 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 All the time. Uh, so they I just say, here's the have... solution, go. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've started on the current uh, product that I'm, I'm working on uh, is if I get a ticket, I expect it to have a purpose statement at the top of it. Um, that says like, why are we doing this? And I don't, I don't really care about the format. A lot of times if I, if they're talking to me and I write it myself, uh, I use like the, as, as a, some role in, in order to accomplish some task, I want something. And I even try to, that something I try to keep a little bit nebulous and more around like not a solution, but like you know, I, I need this data. I don't care how you get it to me. I just need this data and I need it quickly or whatever. And I'll, I'll, so I try to keep them lined up that way. And I try to make every story have that because I think that's important as a developer to come up with the best possible solution. You really need to know why. And sometimes that seems weird to, to people uh i it seems weird to some developers that i run into it seems weird to some managers usually they're early developers they're not somebody who's been doing it for a while they're like why they told me like i just i just need to display this uh autocomplete well yeah but maybe that's not the best solution so let's let's work together i think if you're telling developers exactly the solution you're losing probably 80 percent of their value because you're not you're they're now just a machine and we all have thoughts and ideas and we're going to do better if all of us get out those ideas together. I guess how do you encourage to, especially when you're working with folks that are younger in their careers, how do you encourage folks to move from that? Like I'm thinking a lot about that with this kind of workshop that we're trying to put together is to help people kind of work towards that larger problem solving type of thinking as opposed to like I'm picking up the story and this is exactly what the story says and I'm going to do it and it's like well towards the next phase of like okay well here's a problem and I'm going to break it down and then I can actually figure out what needs to be worked on and like how do you all encourage folks that are younger in their careers to move into that type of thinking or like what do you 
how do you see that happening or how do you kind of help like them grow that skill set? Wow. What a question. <laughs> you don't um, have to have, I mean, like I'm so, this is something I've been thinking about the, a lot recently. So yeah, like, no, no, no wrong it's, answers it's, here. Right. I, that's a great question. Cause I, you know, I've, I've led multiple teams over my career and, and I don't know that I've specifically focused on that with, with my junior engineers or, or even my mid-level engineers. I, I usually just encourage them. Like when you take a particular problem, I really dig into it and like understand the context inside the system that already exists. Cause it's usually a thing that already exists that we're working on. Very rarely is it Greenfield. Um, and, and then, um, but, but there was, you know, there's kind of a gap. I feel like, you know, I, I've, when, when I've gone into a new domain, mm -hmm. I spend way more time figuring out what the business problems are or, or like the problem space than I do. Well, what are the technical solutions? Because, you know, very, I find that the technical solutions aren't as varied as the business problems. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> um, true. It's very true. And, but, but then, you know, there's maybe only a few people on my teams who really get a deep understanding of the business problems in addition to their ability to code. Um, and maybe that's a deficiency on my, my leadership style that I don't get people to, to do that. But, uh, but like sometimes it, you know, you may just have to, well, one thing I have done that has had various successes, throw them in the deep end. Be like, right. there's this whole section of features that need to be done in this subdomain. Go figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. How has that, that worked generally when you've done that? Uh, sometimes it works fine. Um, you know, so, sometimes I think that... Uh, it, it hasn't worked that well, and maybe I just needed to give them more more context. Um, one, one developer who I, who I did this to over a year ago, uh, he's now the, the lead of that team. I've moved on, but um, I said, uh, you know, we were working on an authentication system, and I said, you need to implement sign-up. So go do it. Um, and I thought that this was going to be, you know, clear enough. I gave him some pointers on certain aspects of, of what needed to be done. But without like a huge, um, you know, detailed design, um, because I wanted him to own it. Uh, you know, we had only maybe four people on the team total, uh, and the, you know, the other two developers were working on other things, and um, and so he he came back and and had some things that kind of looked like sketch prototypes. Um, you know, I give him feedback, uh, and then he'd go back and work on it again. I give him feedback and. And like at, at some point it had been, you know, a couple of weeks and he seemed really frustrated. Like, I don't, I don't like this should just work. I don't, I don't know what's going wrong. Um, and so I think that that was a case where, you know, I, I didn't do so well setting him up for success. Um, on the other hand, I think he learned a ton and, you know, he ended up being like, uh, you know, good, a person to to lead the team not from technical expertise but just like ability to motivate people and make them feel good about the work they're doing um and but uh but that was that was kind of a thing where i felt like ah oh, you know maybe i maybe I expected too much or maybe i didn't give enough specificity um 
meanwhile, this, this is a huge project. Um, and there were like 10 other things I had to be involved right. with so you uh, had to like and figuring out. Right. So, uh, uh <clears throat> totally. I don't know. Um, totally. on the other hand, there were, there were cases in, you know, previous gigs where, um, I said, well, Hey, we, we need to build, you know, a whole new version of this, uh, this feature and here's the new parameters and, um, and here's like the technologies we're going to use go do it. And I had, you know, a team of a few people just crank it out really fast and it was really, really good quality. So I, I don't know, um, that there's any, you know, specific advice I can give on that, but sometimes throwing them in the deep end works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, everyone's going to be different, right? So it's hard, right? There's no, like, I mean, as, as with a lot of things, right, there's no one answer fits all, um, and like seeing what works for each individual, but it's interesting to hear what, what folks have tried. I feel like to your point, there's always like, I feel like there's this little, there's a gap between like, if you're like mid-level and you want to go to like, to, to operate at a more senior level as an engineer, just like you're thinking the process in which you think about problems needs to shift slightly. And so how do you get people to like, start doing more of that? And that's kind of what we're trying to explore with this, this particular thing. Right. Yeah, that that deep end thing is, I find it works pretty well on very specific personalities. You know, some people you throw them in the deep end and they go, "Uh oh, (laughs) and they freeze. And uh, that doesn't make them a bad engineer or anything. It's just, you know, that fight or fight or flight or (laughs) freeze kind of thing. It, It happens when given a requirement, not just when being chased by tigers. Totally. Totally. Uh, I try to, if, if they're freezing, I, I feel like the deep end thing works pretty well, but you can do it with a little guidance too, if they're freezing. And I, I try to ask some questions a little bit to get them thinking. And then I have sometimes said, you know what, go, go away. It doesn't matter like an hour and come back with five questions. Just, just show back up with five questions that you have. And it kind of gives them a little time to think about it. It's not putting them on the spot saying, what don't you understand right now? Or what, what do I need to clear up? Because they haven't even had a chance to think through it. And, and so giving them that time to, to actually come up with the questions and think about it. And then they're not thinking, how am I going to solve this? They're more thinking like, what do I not understand about this? Which sometimes is an easier question to answer. Totally. And so you just get them moving works really well for me. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. Um, yeah, so there's no like, what, there's no right answer. Like, it's just like, how do you, it's, it's really interesting to like, kind of explore, like, how do you get people more able to A, feel comfortable with ambiguity, B, feel more comfortable thinking in like different layers of abstraction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, just a couple things, a couple, and that's, there's no, like, again, no right answer. We're just trying to come up with like, maybe a couple of patterns that are useful in a toolkit to help folks when they get into those situations. Do what do you what do you do in? What do I do? I mean I think similarly it's like um sometimes just giving somebody a little bit again depending on the personality sometimes throwing somebody into the deep end is helpful, right? Giving them a little bit of time to run. Um but then with support so then like they can come back if they're confused or they can come back if they're flailing and either like ask them questions or work through the problem or like, you know, whiteboard something to give them if they're really flailing help them figure out how to set some more constraints and some more parameters right some more specificity um usually they're flailing because there's too much ambiguity um 
And so adding specificity to the problem or helping them figure out how to do that helps them kind of uh, bring their thinking down into like more concrete terms and then helps them figure out how to move forward. How do you not just give them the answer? Like that, that is something that I have a hard time with too, is like, especially when it's really clear to me, uh, uh, I do this to our interns. I, if they are listening, I'm really sorry that I do this to you sometimes, <laughs> but like, I, I'm just like, okay, well, fine here. Here's exactly what you need to do. Here's all the steps. Go do that. Like, I, let me just spell it out for you. And, and I, I think that's a disservice for them. Um, but, so how do you, how do you do that when the way is clear for you, but like, we really need to train them to get to that point on their own and just giving them the answers doesn't do that. So how do you, yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of just asking questions, right? Sometimes providing a little bit more information, but really just asking questions. I'm like asking them to question their assumptions, asking them to like question why they think what they're thinking, where do they think they need to move forward? Right? Like it's a lot, it's more facilitating a conversation, which sometimes again, priorities compete. You don't always have the time and the resources to do that. Um, but a lot of it is, really just ask, getting them to become more curious about the problem and thinking about how to move forward. Um, and sometimes it's like, if they're really stuck, then you provide a little bit. You're like, well, what about this suggestion? And like, have them think about it. And rather than saying, okay, just go do all these things, having them build towards understanding, uh, getting a better understanding, right? So you like the Socratic method, the gratis arparnasum? <laughs> kind of. It's not exactly. It's not just, it's not always quite like that, but yeah, that tends to work pretty well. Um, but also like, and then, and then having them also, um, I found that how they try and getting them to try and diagram the system and diagram, like where they are, what the problem looks like is super helpful, um, because it'll point out, um, quickly where they don't understand something. Um, and then coming up with the diagram together is often like diagramming that exercise tends to a show where they don't understand something and B the task of putting that together then and flushing it out helps everybody kind of gain a better shared understanding of what needs to happen. Uh, but again, there's no right answer here. I'm just curious because we talk a lot about like skills and we talk a lot about patterns as developers and like when you're trying to become better and like improve and deepen your skills. Um, but most of what we do is spend time thinking about a problem. And so figuring out how to help people, switch their thinking patterns is something that's really interesting to me because I don't, it's not an easy thing to teach necessarily, but I think it's possible. It's also about communicating, right? Too, uh, because if you can't, if you can't explain the problem, you can't explain the concepts in the, in the design space to your coworkers, then they're not going to understand what you're talking about. They're not going to understand how to find their way through the code. Um, so yeah. Well, I'll let you know if I come up with anything interesting. Sorry, Amos, go ahead. I was just going to say like, I think the next step past that, of like just figuring out the problem is, you know, you, Anna, this came off of you saying the patterns and, and stuff and like pattern recognition is really important. And I think that that's what makes really you become an expert is starting to see how things fit together. Uh, but I think the step beyond that, that I, I always try to encourage, uh, a lot of times I'm just trying to encourage it in myself is to question that pattern though. Like, like once I see it, is this really what the solution is here? Is there something I can do better? Can we improve upon this? Is should we try something completely different? Should we try something completely new? And 
and continuing to experiment and grow. I guess part of that is realizing that I don't know everything, even even though I sometimes feel like I might. <laughs> exactly. No, totally. Questioning those assumptions, right? Um, questioning the assumptions of your system, I think, is like an important an important part in really understanding the problem. Um, and sometimes, and I think you're right, Amos. Like sometimes you're like, oh, we've, especially earlier in your career, you come up with a solution. You're like, it's great, and don't take the time to like step back and be like, is this really the right solution, and why? That's why I love working with beginners. Actually, is because they don't have those same assumptions. So when I say we're going to do it this way, sometimes they're like, that seems stupid. <laughs> why? <laughs> and and they're right. <laughs> um they're not yet poisoned that's right <laughs> by by hacker news and tech crunch and all that yeah sometimes when you get a solution in your head to any problem you can't get out the other day we were at a retro and i was trying to write something on the whiteboard behind me and i have a i have an app that will scan that and like put it on a web page and keep it updated and i couldn't get the app to work and I spent a whole bunch of time on it. And finally, somebody was like, why don't I just open up a Google Doc and type it? And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> because once I had like how I was going to do this in my head, I could not think of anything else other than solving that new problem. Like, why is this not working? I'm going to solve this. I was going to say the the person who said, why don't I just open up a doc is the CTO for my client. And I'm like, yep, that's why you're a CTO. <laughs> nice. I love it. I love it. Um, Y'all should keep chatting. I have to, I have to jump. All right. It was nice seeing you, Anna. Missed you. Great to see you. It was nice to see you too. Yeah, it was lovely to chat. Um, sadly, it's time to for me to go work now. Have a good day, y'all. Hope you'll talk to you soon. You too. Bye. Bye. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about this when Anna was here, um, but I think that was a good, good conversation there. So I don't didn't want to didn't want to disrupt it. But um, you know, I was talking to you that I'm getting ready to do a talk on acceptance testing mm -hmm. at like browser level, full stack on acceptance testing. I and and just the topic of acceptance testing itself not even like how to do it but the the topic of automated acceptance testing is pretty hotly argued i've found out over absolutely the years. some people are like this is this is stupid it's a waste of time and and some people love it i would love to get your take on it like what are your thoughts on on acceptance testing so acceptance testing is it it is hotly debated and my my opinion on it is Usually it's a necessary evil. Um, and I, th I think that what, what you, what you try to do with it is prevent serious regressions and reduce the load for your QA team. If you have one, um, uh, you know, or, or get them involved in writing them, uh, because, um, th there can be a lot of time spent just manually clicking through things um that is not not the the most useful um uh, way to spend your time um e even for qa folks I, I know that they're like they get really good at that they get good at finding uh bugs uh in in user interfaces um but they they also have way too much of that to do uh 
and if you can cut that down um, to, to to codify the things that you know like must work. Now, um, on the flip side of that is that my experience is they tend to be very brittle, um, and that that comes from a combination of it being difficult to specify uh, what the correct behavior is from a purely black box driving a browser point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then also um, evolving those over time as your user interface changes is is really difficult. Um, and I think that I think that's where a lot of teams fall apart is that they go, oh, God, I have to go in there and figure out what were the assumptions of this, especially if you're getting into things like, you know, code reuse for particular uh, pieces of functionality. Um, then, then you have the potential of, well, somebody didn't realize that this was reused in multiple places in different ways, and now you have another code artifact that you're essentially maintaining <laughs> right yeah uh, along with your system um and so it carries along all those same problems you have with the the, the core functionality um uh, yesterday i was reading a thing that was pretty interesting um and I, I don't i didn't get all the way through it um but it was uh, a similar situation where people had you know a big team um a, a large product they were running into the edges of of automated like browser based testing um and they decided uh well and it, and it was especially difficult because they ha- they were trying to spin up microservices and connect them together and there's a whole bunch of asynchrony involved that was uh really difficult to account for um and so uh the the approach that they were trying to discuss was uh, doing contract testing and that's probably not you know if, if you have a, a single you know app it either has you know server-side rendered or it's a, an api driving a front end um and it's just one app that you deploy on its own you probably don't need this particular thing that they were talking about but you know if you've got multiple services or or even third-party vendor apis that you depend on um having this contract testing uh, cut down a lot of their their development and deployment time uh, because their acceptance tests were actively checked in production, in a sense. You, you define like what the contract was between two services, like here's what this service expects to provide and here's what, this, what that one expects to get back when it makes a particular request. Um, and then you, you could uh, turn it into an observability problem instead of a testing problem. Oh yeah, that's that's really nice. I think like it uh somebody, I can't remember who it was, talked about observability is like testing in production. Yep. Um and yeah, and it like it gives you that feedback for the tests that you forgot or you didn't think about, right? Too. So um and it gives you the feedback on on a whole bunch of extra stuff like time how long does this take that your test might not tell you at least not in a real environment i want to you you said the edges of of acceptance testing and i guess that's where you're talking about the con the contract testing and just is it complicated setup or what it when when are you pushing to the edges i i think it really comes down to it 
is the acceptance testing becoming a huge drag on productivity? Um, because, uh, so the example they gave in that article was they had something like uh, a thousand acceptance tests in their test suite. Um, and over a period of, say, a week, uh, there were 42 failures on average in each test suite, but it only found one bug. So, so like those, those failures were not necessarily, they were the test failing, they were not indication of a failure of the systems. So, you know, if, if it's, if it's a, like I said, if it's a single system API or web, you know, server side rendered web app that you can drive on your local machine, yeah, acceptance tests are going to work really well. Because then you're, you're, you're black box testing a, essentially a single system or a, a single unit, not in the unit testing sense, but like a single <laughs> thing you could deploy, right? Uh, versus, you know, running five systems that interact with one another and then trying to drive them from the outside and expecting anything to happen in a timely fashion that you can verify, that might that might be problematic. Yeah, I, the the timely fashion is a big thing. And, and I, I, I'm curious about those failures though uh because i i do find a lot of times the acceptance test it'll fail but it might not actually point you to why and i might have 10 acceptance tests fail because of the same problem somewhere down at the bottom of the system the further down in the system it is the more likely it is to fail more acceptance tests and, and then the really bad thing is when you rerun it a second time and it passes because now you know that Yes, there's a bug, but it's around timing. And, and I think that's where I see people get frustrated and walk away from acceptance testing more than anything. is Slowness to a point, and there are ways that you can deal with that. Like maybe just I only run the one I'm interested in and then let the build run the rest of them or, or whatever. But that it is hard to figure out timing bugs. But I think that we, especially using Elixir and Erlang, we're in a language where we are often dealing with timing and, yes. and a distributed system. And yes, you have a distributed system. I, I, let's go with like the most basic web app. You have a distributed system yeah, because you're talking <laughs> to a database that's separate from your application. You're, and if you have any triggers in that database, now you have like bigger, even bigger timing issues because maybe you have a materialized view that doesn't get updated for 30 seconds. Well, that sucks. Your test failed. Or you have a front end that, that once it's doing more than just displaying the data you're handing, even at that, you have timing from the server to the browser, the browser rendering. But then when you add JavaScript on top of that, you've got another another thing. And and I know like we have this, oh, I got, I got live view, right? I don't have to write JavaScript. There's still JavaScript going on there. You still have have those issues, and then I, everybody that I've seen that has written a significant live view application ends up having to write some custom JavaScript in the front end too. That that the best ways that I've seen to test that are at the acceptance test level, and then when you have to run across multiple browsers, being able to pull in Selenium and run that on multiple platforms, multiple browsers, and and I think the bang for the buck is there. It's just we have to get past the frustration and and how can we get past those frustrations and and for me the part of the big turnaround was actually thinking about it as a distributed system like all almost all of these when it looks like it works to me but it's not on there in the test it's because 
I need to be thinking about messages and when they're arriving and, and when can they fail? So I, I don't know. That's your mileage may vary. <laughs> yeah. And, um, two things, I don't want to go into too much of a tangent, but like you were, you were talking about, you know, the, the state of your application versus the state that's in the database versus the state that's in the, the user's browser session. Um, there's this great article I think everybody should read. It's I think it's free to view the communications of the ACM uh, called There Is No Now. Um, and uh, written by Justin Sheehy, who used to be my CTO years ago. Uh, but like it's a really insightful uh, recognition that the your understanding of state um, and when things happened is wrong. Um, and, and really what you need to do is build a useful model that can help you reason about state um, rather than relying on, um, well, our clocks are in sync, therefore, you know, this happened before that. Um, and, and also that, you know, if you think about that, that three-tier thing we just talked about, the browser, the, the application, the database, everything in each layer of, of that app is old. Like it's stale when you're, when you're looking at it, when you're operating on it, in some senses, it's stale. Now the database tries to paper that over by giving you, you know, transaction isolation and, you know, other consistency guarantees. Right. Um, but by the time it gets to the browser, something else probably happened on someone else's browser. That means that that data is old. Um, most of the time, like, it doesn't matter for, for the individual person trying to understand what the application is doing for them. Um, but, but like, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's all, it's all from the past, everything that you see. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, you mentioned about, you know, finding the bug, like, uh, that you, you ran it again and because it was a timing problem, you couldn't really find where, where the, where the bug was. And, uh, one thing that occurred to me is that we, we often in those acceptance tests don't really, uh, we don't really capture anything about the environment that the test was run in when we run those. Right. But in Erlang and Elixir, we have some great tools for that. It's called common test. And a lot of people don't pick up common test, but for every test you run, it creates a new directory with log files and like any artifacts you want to write out as you're running the test. And it, it's, it is an old <laughs> arcane system, um, but it's great at capturing test history. I had never heard of this. Uh, Fred, of course, has a great article about common yeah. tests and learn, <laughs> learn you some Erlang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, mo most of my uh, research when I'm starting a new problem and I don't know what to do starts with seeing if Fred has written about it. Right. <laughs> he probably has. <laughs> yeah. All the hard problems. And he makes them seem so easy. Um, what, one of the things, I, I know that acceptance tests are slow, right? That's like a, uh, I guess, finding the bugs. I, I, I'm going to say one thing that I do for finding bugs on acceptance test is also coming from Fred is recon trace. Mm -hmm. I will you I will trace the crap out of everything. To me that's like uh re recon trace is um 
metrics and telemetry data for when you forgot to put it in the first place <laughs> so, so that you can go figure out what's going on and and it's super useful but um i digress uh, <laughs> the the one thing that i really uh i've tried it in the small i'd like to do it a little bigger is do a stateful acceptance test property based acceptance testing and I know that I need a computer that can run for four hours to, to, to run it just because they are so slow. Uh, but I, I think that one, either I would find all the timing problems in my tests that I need to fix because my test assertions aren't very good. Um, but I, I think that that could be really, really powerful if we can, if we can get our test suite in a, in a way to where it's not our test suite that's the problem, but actually the the system itself, we, we could find all kinds of crazy bugs. Yep. Uh, there's a system that one of my coworkers is working on that um, they basically, it, it needs to be a super high assurance system. So they, from the beginning, thought, uh, let's get property-based tests um, around this. And it, it, it's basically like, all the other systems that interact with it interact with it in the same way. Um, so what they can do is spin up dummy uh, consumers and and producers of information that interact with this and simulate it with with property based tests. Um, so yeah, I would highly recommend trying that. Uh, it it's like it's a fun space of problems to try to solve, but uh, I, you know, timing. I was recalling. Back when I was at Basho working on React, um, we had our own homegrown integration testing framework called React Test. Um, it wasn't really a, a, a testing framework per se. It was more like, here's a couple modules that help you spin up React nodes in the background. And it was funny because uh, for a while, I had been at Basho longer than a bunch of people, so I hadn't had my laptop refreshed. Um, and so uh, what happened was when we were having a problem with a particular test, they're like, oh, you know, have Sean run it on his laptop because it'll provoke the timing <laughs> bug. <laughs> and, you know, you're talking about it taking a long time. Oh, man, my like I probably burn tons of megawatts of power just trying to run those integration <laughs> tests for my coworkers. We we have an old MacBook Air that I have have run tests on on purpose just because I knew it would be it would it would throw out all kinds of problems and it does it finds all the timing issues <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah I think that I mean that's a good point whenever you're running all that locally to think about is like the slower the system the more likely like you are to see those timing issues because that front end is going to be that much farther behind the database. Mm -hmm. And that test usually is based on some kind of timing. And so you, you time out in 500 milliseconds, but that's just because your app is running so godly slow. Right. Yeah. And I, th I think you and I talked about it previously, but um, a lot of times you just need those, those conditions you wait for um, and you kind of pull in a loop, you know, sleep between, iterations and like have a maximum number of times you try and and that's a lot a lot more tolerant of timing bugs than 
okay, I completed these steps, assert this thing now. Um, like right at this instant. Uh, and, and, and it also like helps you like coordinate if you've got multiple systems spinning up that have to talk to one another. You say, well, okay, wait for systems A, B, and C to be started and respond with the, these particular uh, responses when I hit their health check or whatever. Um, and, and you know, you can use those as sorts of barriers to move your, your uh, acceptance test forward. A, lo a lot of the frameworks will do the timing part for you if you use a framework. So that's kind of nice that frequently you don't have to think about it, but sometimes you still end up needing to make your own timer around something mm -hmm. or extend it temporarily. Uh, I have also had timing based on the system that was running it. Like locally, I, I would have it configured for like 50 milliseconds and on the build server, because it was often a shared space and you could get bogged down by somebody else's build running, we would make it 150 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds. And then uh, on particularly slow machines, we might actually make it two seconds, <laughs> which seems like forever. But whenever you are running that full stack on one machine, that can can really bog it, bog things down a lot. I wonder if that like idea of exponential back off could be useful um, in that scenario. You know, the congestion control stuff, because, you know, well, if it doesn't pass in a really short amount of time, maybe you need to take longer on your next iteration when you're trying to pull that condition. I think it would at least keep your fans from spinning so so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because those those loops are usually pretty tight that check. So yeah, that that probably could be helpful. And especially if you can run more than one test at a time, then you're just giving CPUs to the other test to get it done or to the back end to to try to catch up. That's a good idea, Sean. I didn't think about that. Oh, we've been on here an hour and I yeah. want to talk all day, but I probably need to go get some work done. I need to go get some vacation done. Yeah, enjoy your <laughs> vacation. <laughs> Thanks. I look forward to seeing you at, uh, are you, are you coming to the meetup next month or next I'm week? I'm definitely coming to KC Elixir. I need to program a bot to beat all of you. Well, yeah, everybody beats me on the bot challenges. I'm terrible at them. <laughs> so we'll see. <clears throat> Maybe this year I, I won't have a spelling mistake. Last year I couldn't get my anything to work because I had a spelling mistake. It's like, what is going on? Oops. Swap two letters. <laughs> <laughs> Happens to me all the time. <laughs> All right, Sean. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Talk to you later. Thanks, Amos. Later.